Gentlemen, I'd like to welcome all of you to the officers' mess at Baldonnell and to this special reunion dinner we're holding today to celebrate a very unique time for the Air Corps and for the pilots who flew for the films that were shot in Ireland 32 years ago. Some of you flew in the Blue Max in 1965, others in Darling Lily in 1967 and in the Red Baron in 1970. All of you will have memories of that exciting time and I'm certain that today's reunion will give all of us the opportunity to renew contacts and to share our stories of that unique operation. Contact! vivid memories. It was on a certain sunny day when we were uh, climbing up to four and a half, five thousand feet for one of the dogfight sequences. I was flying a Fokker D7 and at about four thousand feet I recall feeling a strong breeze around my legs and wondering where it was coming from. Eventually I decided to inquire from the aircraft closest to me on my radio as to whether he could see anything wrong and having done so, I recall Brian MacDonald, who was in a Corriwat adjacent to me, I think, saying to me, uh, I regret to tell you, Sonny, that uh, the side of your aircraft is peeling off. The aircraft themselves were very fragile. They were a fabric covered in Irish linen or Madaplin or whatever. The main wood used was, was Sitka spruce and plywood. There was quite a lot of damage done from time to time. Quite a lot of ribs got broken, and that damage had to be repaired. It didn't matter what it cost or how long, but had to be ready for the next time of shooting. I suppose all told, we had well over 20 aircraft kept flying, and we were all kept busy. It wasn't unusual for people to work the 24 hours. In fact, I worked 48 hours non-stop. There was a certain element of going back technologically. Uh, I had come from flying the chipmunk and I found the control response, or indeed the lack of it in the Tiger Moth, I found it quite alarming. I remember one occasion when I flew into the slipstream of the filming helicopter and the aircraft just rolled to the left and no amount of control that I could apply would stop me from going into a steep spiral dive.
Ken, nice how are you? you? Chris, nice to see you. Ken. William Henry. Jim, oh, how are you? Nice to see you. <laughs> John, I know you. <laughs> Don't tell me we're going to go all over, all over this madness that went on 30 years ago. They want to see a bit of action. Or they won't think it's real. Precisely. This was... And I said, oh, God. You know, <laughs> what is this? You know, we're doing impeccable formation, and it's too good. The general, the viewing public want, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> bouncing up and down and wind and wire stuff. So. Blue Max, 1965. 20th Century Fox. Uh, they made that film, as you may know, fairly shortly after that delightful farce called The Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines. And uh, they did learn most of that, I think, in England, and then they discovered that they might get a, a good deal in Ireland, so they came over here in early 65 and surveyed the prospects, Ardmore, and, of course, what really made the film, I think, for them was the uh, use of the Irish army, including the Air Corps, and they got a tremendous amount of help from the Irish government, and I think right from the start they saw that that was a, a very good thing to have. So uh, coming to Ireland, they got a great uh, send-off, I think, with the almost unlimited amount of support they got from the Department of Defence which, of course, included the Air Corps. I don't think they could have made the film without the support of the Air Corps pilots. They were tremendously useful and successful operators, and uh, they were under strict control, and they did a really good job. I think without them, I don't think that film would have been very easy to produce from the aviation point of view. Um, strangely enough, a lot of the old replicas they brought over of the First World War I fighters were made either in Germany or in France, and uh, they weren't terribly airworthy, but uh, our friends over in Baldonnel certainly made good use of them and took over the whole flying operation and made a success of it. 
And one of the main locations for the aircraft uh, in the context of operation was from Western Airfield. Western Airfield is very close to Baldonnell, actually, and is owned by uh, Captain Darby Kennedy. And his airfield was extremely suitable uh, to the type of work we had to do for the film company because they had to create the scene of an airfield in the uh, World War I time with the canvas hangars and plenty of manpower around to push airplanes in and out and refuelling and the taking off and landing and that. But the field was absolutely perfect for that. And I do recall also that it was from Weston that the first Tiger Moth arrived over to Baldonnell to facilitate the training of the Air Corps instructors and Air Corps pilots generally uh, for participation in this film and subsequently in other films that happened. None of our generation at that time had ever flown biplanes. So initially, uh, we started our training after evening hours when flying for the general business of the day was over. And we had grass strips between our runways and taxiways on the airfield at Baldonnell, specially cut. I was selected by the chief flying instructor to be his deputy. So we were the first two to get into the air. And it was quite an extraordinary experience because every aircraft I'd been in up to that point had a canopy and had a relatively cosy cockpit, whereas all of a sudden you were in a leather jacket and a leather helmet with goggles, open cockpit, and the wind whistling around all over the place. And it was really quite different. The hard core of the initial operation was about six or eight. And it became a serious part of our life because we were seconded to the film company when it started in early May. So we had a lot of briefings and we had to do a lot of understanding about what was required when we got into these biplanes in the sky and the manoeuvres that we needed to perform. And I recall very well that the aerial director and his staff were very, very fussy about the background that was necessary for the film shots they had to get. I remember they told us one day that blue skies are lovely, but they mean nothing in the film. Because there's no background, there's no perspective, there's no depth. So we were chasing cumulus clouds around the skies over Wicklow and Kildare for quite a number of weeks, trying to get the right shots that they needed uh, to fit their storyline. But it quickly moved to Weston, because Weston uh, was the airfield uh, for the movie, where the takeoffs and landings and the canvas hangars and the maintenance was going on, and there was a busy area for coming and going. And that was a very well-done piece of the film. There were other flying officers from the civilian world uh, who had come across from England from a previous film and uh, they were quite professional in the stunt area and they had flown very, very old aircraft in the making of the film The Magnificent Men and we took some time to get to know them and they to know us because we had to fly together and they maintained the dominant position in the formations and in the special flying that had to be done. But over the months, we learnt from them some of the tricks of the trade and we were then permitted to upgrade from Tiger Mats to some of the other aircraft, one of which was uh, the triplane, that's the three-winged aircraft, which was Baron von Richthofen's aircraft. 
And that, of course, was a, a, a great uh, thrill to be able to fly that. And that will be one, certainly one of my prominent memories, having flown a triplane, and particularly painted red. <laughs> uh, marching up and down at Western, trying to learn his lines, with thousands of trucks which he couldn't get out. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he came in yeah. for a take. And instead of saying thousands of trucks carrying troops, he said, thousands of troops carrying trucks. <laughs> <laughs> what was his name? He's still kicking about. Uh, yeah. Michael Vogue. A gentleman, true gentleman. <clears throat> and he actually looked like an airport. <laughs> he looked like an officer too, which is yeah. unusual for them. Yeah. Oh, he was a good actor. Uh, Von Kluggerman. But his yeah. his ego was absolutely destroyed the day he did the U-turn in the in the triplane, yeah. and he opened the throttle of the triplane to move supposedly two yards. Mm. He did a U-turn and crashed into the triplane beside him. <laughs> <laughs> and we all laughed. He didn't turn up for about four. He didn't. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but Rob Hudson did the same on the D7 Western, <laughs> and I was given the task to stand in the stirrup yeah, on the mm. blind side of the camera and shouted at him, take the throttle back. <laughs> and he, he took great care to brief himself what he should do. Mm. And I had to roar at him just to pull that back when I tell you, if we're going mm. off course, you know. So he succeeded in getting forward six feet in a kind of a, a taxiing shot, which kept everybody happy. Yeah. Mm. Well, you failed miserably in your instruction because subsequently out at, out, at, out at Carton, I was told to tell him how to taxi up towards the camera. And I remember telling him, this aircraft has no brakes and he said hey really mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I told him you've got to put on a fair amount of throttle plenty of rudder as you come up to the camera otherwise the aircraft won't turn mm. and he said uh, yeah I got it he said uh, I was in I was did a little bit of flying in the last war and uh, as he came up to the to the camera he put on a minimum amount of power mm. and had full rudder alright but of course the aircraft just kept going <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Uh, I remember Louis Tracing saying to me afterwards, you're a lucky man, <laughs> if he had done damage, you were the instructor. <laughs> we were doing this scramble, there were a whole line of aircraft. We'd say there were six or eight aircraft. But there were only four sets of chocks, and there were only four technicians to do the hand-swinging. All the aircraft were hand-swung. That's right, there were no uh, electric or, or cartridge starters. <laughs> But in an endeavour to get airborne smartly, uh, a certain pilot, he, he put a person standing outside the cockpit who was to pull back the throttle once the engine had fired. However, no chocks, engine fired, aircraft moved forward, so he abandoned the aircraft. Tom, who had swung the prop, ran out of the way, grabbed hold of the wingtip, and the aircraft started <laughs> like, like your, your proverbial lasso, going round in circles until it eventually stopped, nose up, propeller, propeller broken. Yeah. of the different flying films shot in Ireland from 1965 to 1970, the Air Corps pilots flew many different replica aircraft. 
these replicas were three Fokker D7s. We had two Fokker triplanes, two Falsas, and um, eight SE5As. The real aircraft were a Luciol, a Moran Parasol, we had Tiger Moths, and we had Stamps. Unfortunately, we lost two of the SE5 aircraft in fatal accidents in 1970. One of those was out at Western Airfield, and the other one happened a few miles north of Wicklow Town, just off the east coast. The accident at Weston involved a civilian pilot and happened just after takeoff. And the accident in Wicklow, which happened during the filming of a scene from Zeppelin, was an air-to-air collision, and one of our Air Corps pilots was killed. I never knew any kid film came out of the Cliff Robertson one. That was the missing film. Remember I spoke yeah. to you that there were five? Blue Max, Darling Lily, Rick Tobin, The Red Barn, Zeppelin, and the fifth one was that one. And it went missing. I never saw I never saw it on screen after that. I remember doing a shot at the end of Blue Max, and I was to bomb something. There was a bomb on a cable that was supposed to go down there. I was supposed to drop that. It was done up in Kilpeder. Anyway, I did this, but um, Carly had done his trick, and uh, the explosions were rather fierce, and I didn't, I didn't really enjoy it very much. But Peppard's brat of a young son came up to me and said, Daddy says you're no good. <laughs> That's the end of your film career. <laughs> Does anyone remember being slung out of a roof of the hangar with a blue background? saying that earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was the, the aircraft out of the roof and yeah, put a background. blue canvas background yeah. and our hero would stand there with the guns going mm, sure. yeah, or the sound effects of the guns ah. and they would tilt and the wind, aircraft. And a wind machine. A wind machine oh, to blow right. the scarf, the silk scarf sure. back and the, you know. Way, yes, no yeah, yes. Biggles, yeah. And he'd look out and he'd grimace and go da 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 and they would back that with our, with the professional film. They put a few of us into that. I remember distinctly feeling it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my whole life. <laughs> just fly out of a wire in the roof of the hangar. It was crazy. You did you your mean, best flying. Thanks, Brian. I reckon the, the, the guy most surprised in the, whole, in the whole business was the RAF pilot that arrived in Baldano to visit us here from 22 Squadron and was joined by Valley two here. Fokker D7s <laughs> <laughs> on his left and right with iron crosses on them. I reckoned he'd be very confused <laughs> that he had gone in the wrong direction. <laughs> but did, did anybody ever feel that they got wrapped up in the filming that we were doing where you had dogfights and you had the bombs going off and the guns? And uh, I remember coming back in here to Baldonnell one time and the sun... Mm-hmm. Just about setting, we were just about made it back to Baldonnell in time, and uh, landing on the grass strip up there. Mm-hmm. You kind of felt that yeah, yeah. you were getting wrapped up in this thing that you, you were just more than a, a flyer. Uh, you were out there really, really doing it. Yeah, you were having an effect on the course of the war. Of course, we were very, <laughs> you were very young. Then, you know. Yeah, because you were a German one day. That's were, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, from left to right, you were a German. Flying from right to left, you were a Brit. That's <laughs> it. Just saying that. <laughs> 
that uh, I always found it very funny to taxi off into a German airfield, you know, and pass by the British airfield and you're left as you went <laughs> <laughs> flown over to the UK every evening <coughs> and to come back the following day the Russians up in, in uh, Russians Arbor's, always in Arbor, Arbor Arbor Studios in yes, watching the Russians the Russians the ones in Dark Bibi were in the Tower um, Cinema in Clondorfin used to be known as the Bibi <coughs> and Christy and I went in one day do you remember that Christy we saw the Russians, we still had our camouflage on because we, we wanted to see what we were doing right or wrong in the rushes. Went over to the pub across the way and they wouldn't let us in because we were dirty. Nuclear <laughs> <laughs> essential. Yeah. Yeah. Remember he, one of his tricks was for the explosions, you know, a stick of gelling night or whatever explosive they had under a bag of cement. Yeah. Of course, it made a, a cloud. spectacular cloud. He <laughs> also had plastic bags of petrol. So he went, and of course that went up in a huge sheet of flame and it looked great and totally harmless. The deliberate mistake was when he placed the, the bags of cement and all put everything in place, he forgot about the dampness. And by the time he exploded them, some of the, the cement had actually solidified. That's right. So they, you had shrapnel. Certainly I remember Tom Murphy coming back and he had shrapnel through, uh, yeah, because it was now an explosion of solid piece of concrete. And there you can get to combat. <laughs> I have a memory of the fabric tearing on an aeroplane on you. It was like losing your trousers, wasn't it? I'm sure when you got from my right here, I remember that very well as well. About 4,000 feet climbing up the dark and I felt the breeze around my ankles. I remember seeing you, I think you were in a curry watch, were you? Mm. And I said, India Golf, would you ever have a look around and see, am I in one piece? And you said something to the effect that, I regret to tell you that the side of your aeroplane is peeling off. <laughs> Help us at hand. Only one side peeled off, and it didn't peel off the wing, so it was possible to get back down. But I'm trying to think of the name of the, of the comedian in Darling Lily. What was his name? The guy that took the part of the drunk. Lance Percival. Ah, That's it. well done. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I got the job of doing a sequence of drinking in the cockpit while flying along the canal. You remember that low-level sequence? And I was given the bottle, you see, full of, it's full of water, actually. And we were flying along there. I was trying to fly with my left hand at low level over the bridges in the canal. 
and then the helicopter was to the right, and I said, you know, you know, rolling, take, or whatever it is, or, and I threw up the bottle to take a swig, and I forgot the slipstream effect, and I broke my front teeth with the bottle. <laughs> don't often say it, and we've forgotten about it, was that it was, the filming business was very exciting time. It was, I mean, for me, uh, I was a younger pilot on it. It was tremendous to break out of the normal sort of uh, routine that we were involved in in the airport. Well, as far as I remember, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and uh, Paddy Curley and myself were on a flight, or detailed for a flight, with an SE-5 and a Fokker D-7. Now, as usual, once you get airborne, the engines and the wind is clattering about your heads and everything is exciting. And down below, we could see Pigeon Hill uh, with its tower. And on top of the tower, then, you have the cameramen on, up on their platform. And we could see all that from a height. And at the morning brief, we were told, now, we want a tail chase this morning. And we were told that the SE-5 would be in front, the Fokker would be in pursuit and we want you to get in close to the tower. We want you to bank over to the left so that we can see the belly of the aircraft and then hard right again and the camera will pan with you and we'll see the top of the aircraft. And we want you to get in as close as you can now to each other. So off we went, uh, what we considered a fairly straightforward task. Uh, Paddy was in the SE5 and me chasing. And we climb up to about 500 feet uh, from ground and uh, then we would fall into line astern I could see the SE, uh, it loomed like, to me, it was gigantic up on my windscreen. And uh, we'd dive down at the tower. Uh, that looked quite tiny, like a pyramid down below. We'd come in, uh, the SE5 heading for the tower, and me uh, in behind it, weaving and so on. And we'd usually do about uh, two rehearsals before we'd go for a shoot. And we did that quite successfully, a bit tricky, a little bit of wind, and we had to watch out for that. So we had to gauge which, uh, how far out from the tower we'd be before we'd turn, etc. On the third round then, we got uh, the word, action, this is the take. So the SE5 ahead of me was jinking violently back and forth, aiming at the tower and the ground. And I'd follow firing uh, shots, uh, uh, bursts from my fake guns. And from time to time, uh, of course, I would catch into his slipstream, uh, which would slam me over into a, a roaring bank. And I'd take full opposite aileron and rudder uh, control to, to bring it back. And remember that these aircraft weren't like modern aircraft. 
you'd pull hard, really hard on the control column and a second or two later the aircraft would respond and come across to where you wanted it. Uh, so the, there was no instant reaction. But of course there was no problem when you had plenty of room beneath you. But that room soon dwindled as you approached the tower and in a few seconds uh, the camera tower became a, a pretty big thing. We were ready then to uh, bank over hard and around the tower. So we did that on the first action take. As we were climbing out then, uh, we heard, OK, let's try it again. Uh, and this time, can you get closer to the tower and uh, don't be so far apart? And I thought, my God, they want us up closer. So down we came again, line astern, jinking, swerving into the slipstream, grabs you just like, uh, almost like a big hand and twists you around. And if you don't fight... It could, it could turn you over. Now, as the tower uh, was uh, rising up uh, closer to us, we get the order, uh, smoke now, number one. So Paddy hits his smoke, uh, let's say about 100 yards in the tower. And for me, it's like flying into the side of a thundercloud. I knew I was close to the tower. And at that particular point, I get caught also in Paddy's slipstream. So the aircraft rolls wild and to the left and I can't see a thing. Now I can hardly breathe for the smoke but when it does clear away I'm over on my back and closing very fast with the solid ground beneath. I stomp on the right rudder as hard as I can and I snatch the stick back and as hard as I could and uh, the crew on the tower called over the radio and said any possibility of doing that again, chaps? Usually, uh, when flying was finished in the evening, of course, they, the film people tried to get the most out of us and if there was any chance at all of getting flying late in the evening we were held back so you always arrived back from Weston to Baldon as the last rays of sun were setting and I remember that time there was a lot of wildflowers now maybe it was a blowover from some of the farms around but Baldon always looked to be in full bloom at that time of the year with a kind of a dandelion flower and uh, as you would, would go round to turn into wind for landing, uh, facing maybe in the direction of, certainly in the westerly direction, uh, with the sun setting, slanting into your eyes, and uh, you coming in on a, we always had to land on a grass strip, you, it would be a very eerie feeling at that time of the evening, and you would, you would just, could be transcended back into... Uh, the First World War time, arriving back in from a, a bombing or a strafing mission back into your airfield, because that was the way you felt. You, your face was blackened from uh, the, the smoke that was going off in the aircraft. You were dirty and you were in this old f type of uh, flying suit and you were in this First World War aircraft. And here were you landing at a grass strip, believing almost that you had been fighting back in the First World War.
was your man? Uh, Seamus Omoraku or John Murakami, the guy who used to do the drawings out at uh, Weston. Japanese, we've got the famous Murakou. But he used to draw out all the scenes overnight, so that the director wanted to have in the film. Storyboard. And then that was put on the that was put on the, on the briefing board the following morning. When I started the film uh, with the name of Murakami, it was rather difficult. So when I was working with the pilots, they they christened me with uh, an Irish name, which is as close as you're going to get, I guess, to Murakami. Was a Murakou. And since my name is Jimmy, which was Seamus, so they always I was known as to be Seamus Omoroku, and and even to this day, if I run into the pilots, they call me Seamus Omoroku. <laughs> um, I came over for the film Von Richthofen and Brown, but I believe they might have released it later and called The Red Baron. I'm, I'm, I wasn't too sure, but that was a Roger Corman directed it. I, I came over as first as an aerial director, art director, associate producer. It's, it's always risky to, to shoot aerial footage because the camera is, I mean, the helicopter is the platform, the camera, and then all the planes have to come to camera. Uh, you can't really shoot anything uh, away from the camera because then you won't pick it up. So all of the actions happen right on top of us because of the nature of the lens. There had to be a wide-angle lens because of the vibration of the helicopter. So we were using probably 50 to 80 millimeter lens, and those planes are quite small. So I, I planned all of the shots to be as sensational as we can possibly get it without getting anyone in danger, including ourselves and the pilots. So all of the, uh, the sorties were done, the close ones, where the plane comes so close you can see the pilot and smoking and twisting and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's quite effective because I've, I've worked out a system with the pilots of a timing of, of uh, when, when you call them to fall, that they come, they fall in towards the camera and then we can move the helicopter just away and the, and the plane goes shooting past us when it's, it's smoking everything. A lot of that stuff was, was quite, quite exciting, stunning shots. We set up another camera up on a biplane, on a, on a, not a biplane, a Cessna, so that was a side-mounted camera. That was Seamus Corcoran was operating that mainly as second unit to follow shots of, uh, because he couldn't do anything tricky with it. They're mostly parallel flying shots, whereas a helicopter could move and turn, twist and go up and down. So it had much more flexibility. We're in the we are just to uh, get very annoyed at Seamus and, and the pilot, because that's uh, what you call was flying at that time. Um, Pat Cranfield flying the the Cessna, but uh, he used days to get into our shot, and we had the master shot, and the Cessna in the shot was not working, so we used to scream at them through the radio and said, Seamus, get your arse out of there, you know, <laughs> you're in the shot. So we, we had to constantly uh, uh, move him aside. He's trying to get good shots, naturally, you know, but uh, so we had a lot of laughs, and Seamus was really, in fact, one of my uh, very good friends. I mean, used to, I was, the first time I was invited to a house in Ireland was Seamus's house for dinner. I'm a film cameraman. I've been quite some years now. Uh, my first movie was The Blue Max. Uh, the next one was Darling Lily, which I was involved in the ground-to-air shooting, all the formations taking off, landing. And uh, that was exciting and difficult enough because dealing with aircraft, you really, really don't know where they're going to go. 
in a specific sense, like you know they're going to be up there and they're going to come right to left or left to right, but it's always a very movable feast as to where they're going to land, and hence that makes it difficult. Uh, the next was uh, von Richthofen from Brown, released as the Red Barn, directed by Roger Corman, which I did a lot of the aerial uh, photography on, mostly from a fixed-wing aircraft. The difficulties on that was that you go into a briefing on ground where everything is controlled and each pilot knows what you're doing and you know what you're doing, and you work out the moves and the stunts. The formation flyers, the pilots would go up first, get into their formation, and then you'd go up next with the cameras and the aircraft and as much as you could remember from the briefing. But now it's cloudy, it may be windy, it could be raining, intermittent cloud, you see an aircraft and you don't see it, and it comes back again. And there are 14 other aircraft up there, all doing their roles and their stunts, they've got smoke bombs. Uh, So it gets a bit, not chaotic, but not exactly as it was on the ground. And you do your very best. You're strapped in. Well, you're not strapped in. It's no more than a seatbelt in a car. And you never feel any effect of falling out or sliding out, even if the aircraft's upside down. The wind whips at the mount and makes it quite difficult in manoeuvring it. But they are very, very sophisticated mounts now, gyro, stabilized and assisted, and all electronic. Your camera zoom, your focus... All of that is electronically controlled from the handles, which you have on either side of you. Again, it's easy, down, on the ground. You can think clearly and everything works. You go up there and it's sort of exciting and moving a lot faster than you think. You push your zoom, you might push it the wrong way or it goes too far, and that's a bad thing. Now, you can't zoom in too far um, past 100 millimeter, you, you want superb weather conditions. You want a great pilot, and you want to be doing uh, something very, very well rehearsed. So you're talking around 75, 35 millimeter to a 75 for sort of a, any sort of stability and definition and depth of field. Therefore, you have to get nearer to the object you're shooting; otherwise, it's too small. And this is when problems can arise. And everybody wants it faster, bigger, more exciting. But the shots were never, ever exactly as you planned them, but they were near enough and they were sometimes better. Now, it's also interesting that it's very hard to see sometimes if you've got the two film cameras and the aircraft and they're all buzzing around. It's very, very hard to identify which aircraft is going to do a particular stunt at a particular time, which one has the smoke bombs, which smoke bomb goes off at a certain time. And if you have a clear blue sky, it's photographically uninteresting. Intermittent cloud going past the camera is very, very exciting. An aircraft zooming out of a piece of cloud gives it great pace and great speed because if you're flying along even at 110, 120 miles an hour, in formation. There's no sensation of speed on a, on a clear day. You could feel you could reach, reach out and touch the aircraft beside you. But with the cloud or mist, or when they let their smoke bombs go, there's a tremendous feeling of speed. And therefore, that makes it very exciting for the, the audience in the, uh, in the cinema. The Roger Corman film, Von Richthofen and Brown, released as The Red Barn, and shot in 1970, was the last in the sequence of World War I genre films shot in Ireland. The collection of replica aircraft were 
for some time later or after that um, housed at Parscourt Catuicler for many years they were there. It was quite amazing that uh, 20 years after the uh, film was made, a certain rich rancher in Texas gave a luncheon to another such rich rancher and after lunch took him onto his veranda to observe a fly past by a number of World War II aircraft which he had uh, collected for his own amusement and to impress his guests. The second Texan felt he couldn't be outdone in this and uh, he sent scouts out to find something better. And he came upon the Blue Max aircraft, which at that time was stored on a mountainside in County Wicklow. He paid for them to be restored, put into flying trim, given internationally valid airworthiness certification, shipped to Texas, so that he could give a luncheon party, which he did, and invite his guests onto the veranda, have them observe this World War I fly past, and say, all mine. This is the tank! Cameras rolling! Guns! Smoke! And action! That's a wrap. 